This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential, and welcome guest favorite, friend of the show, journalist, film critic for The Times and The Guardian, and now host of the excellent new podcast, Writers on Film, John Bleasdale. Hi, Christina. Thanks for inviting me back. Thank you for being back. Now, I'm calling this part one of a Venice show. We're going to be talking about the Venice Film Festival, which is right around the corner, the big titles and our expectations. Will there be a Almodovar Sorrentino Oscar international picture race leading out of this and things like that. And then part two will be when we actually see each other there because we're privileged to be going and see if we actually like these movies we're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, it's always a weird thing. I remember getting excited for a can one year, which had a wonderful lineup. And then almost every single film kind of disappointed, even though, you know, you were looking at the the roster and thinking, this is amazing. And then, uh, and then they were all kind of okay. There was no, you know, and then, then what happens is the, the thing that you're not looking forward to is the, is the film that blows you away. Sometimes when I see critics writing out of festivals also is that they're so excited to be there that everything is like five plus, five plus, five plus. And then when it finally comes out, it's like, hmm. <laughs> you liked being in the room, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My big one for that was, um, uh, I guess I, there were a couple. T- Tony Ederman was one where I missed the screening that everybody was in. And everybody said, it's the funniest film you've ever seen. And I watched it the day after and I thought, okay you know it's not <laughs> I didn't think it was but it, everybody who was in that room for that first screening you know gave it five stars and yeah so the 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 atmosphere there is a dizziness that can happen and also because sometimes it's timing sometimes um you know after four or five days people are getting like oh we we really need a big film so when a film comes along that that you know ticks a few boxes and excites people a little bit there is a tendency to run away with it so fall festival season is upon us and that includes toronto telluride new york venice for example and this year we're still in the throes of a global pandemic it's been a period um, for the film industry which i'm sure will go on which is the film industry is pretty massacred to save the least um before we start talking about the films itself, how, how just is the Venice Film Festival handling this? And Alberto Barbera, how are they approaching a in-person film festival this year? Well, of course, last year they did an in-person film festival at a point when the pandemic was still very much uh, still a huge issue. And um, it was the first major film festival, I think, to 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 do that. There were much fewer people, it has to be said. There was, a, I think there was... a maybe a half if not a third of the usual contingent and there were and there were a lot there's a, there was a lot less talent as well a lot less actors and stars especially from america which is zero um and i have to say the organization was amazing the organ organization was splendid uh you could book your tickets there was no queuing there was no um there were checks everywhere they were very strict on masks they were very good hand sanitizer was everywhere it, it really, really felt, it, in fact, it was one of my favorite festivals because it was so well organized that the, the, the collateral effect of that was, so for instance, not queuing, not having to worry about, will I get into the screening or not? You book your ticket, you're in. You don't need to worry. You don't need to turn up early. You just go walk in. And, and in, in comparison, Cannes this year, which of course was also in person and, and also had a lot of these measures in place, uh, I felt was very, very patchy. You know, uh, there was no social distance, distancing, for instance. Venice is still keeping social distancing, even though uh, Locarno and um, and Cannes didn't. I mean, in Cannes, we had the ridiculous situation of having to sort of group en masse in order to check our green passes and our vaccination things before going in. So even though, and, and there was no, and, and the other, you know, big criticism I would have, uh, put on can is they have these huge theaters for anybody who doesn't know lumiere and uh, the debussy a massive you know two three thousand plus theaters and um they have a balcon balcony and they have an orchestra two levels um and because there weren't as many people again you know not as many people turned up this year as they would normally do 
for many screenings, they would close the balcony and just put everybody in the orchestra. <laughs> so even though they had the capacity, they had, the opportunity. They had the absolutely opportunity, absolutely capacity to do more social distancing. Uh, for every single screening I went to in Cannes, I was sitting with one person on either side. Yeah, there was zero zero social distancing, and I was, I think they, I think they dodged a bullet there. I don't think, um, you know, I don't think there were any super spreading events coming out of that. But at the same time, I don't think it was uh, because of any uh, mitigation measures that they took. Well, that would be interesting to see if you feel the same way about Venice this year. Yeah, I hope I'm not jinxing it by praising them so much last year, but they certainly have got a good record, and um, people beforehand were very. Uh, I think there's a slightly racist skepticism when it comes to Italy sometimes that people, oh, the Italians can't organize anything. Well, actually, they can. They're very good at, at this sort of things when they put their minds to it. And so hopefully it'll be the same this year. Well, it's an absolutely amazing jury that they've lined up this year with Bong Joon-ho, which, of course, Parasites, um, Chloe Zhao, the recent Academy Award winner for Nomadland, um, one of my absolute favorite documentaries of last year, Collective, the director Alexander Nanu, and who else am I forgetting here? Saverio Costanzo, Italian director, um, Cynthia Rivo. It's a pretty massive jury. Yeah, I love the way they've got um, uh, uh, Bong, <laughs> Bong in because he was, uh, you know, he kind of was breaking Venice's run of having these Oscar winners. You know, we we you know get No Man Land again this year, so it goes back to Venice. But you know, previous to that, we'd had Roma, we'd had uh, Shape of Water, we'd had you know, going all the way back to Spotlight and Gravity. It's just a, an amazing run of uh, Venice's ability to program Oscar winners. Um, and when Parasite came along, it was like, okay, Can Canna's got one, but but they, they've given the director the head of jury, so so we still we still managed to net net him somehow. Uh, no, that's a brilliant choice, and he's a wonderful cinephile. He's somebody who 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 knows his stuff, as you would imagine. So and and yes, Chloe Zhao uh, has come to prominence, and and you know. I, I had the opportunity of interviewing Chloe Zhao. Have, have you interviewed her, Christina? I haven't. I haven't. All oh, right. Loved it. I interviewed her in China. I was in China for this very um, interesting festival in Pingyao, which is a small town in the middle of uh, central China. And I interviewed her. She had the rider there. And she's just such a lovely, um, sharp as a whip, you know, absolutely um you know, a brilliant mind and a real, but a really, really approachable and interesting and, and loved talking and, and loved having a conversation and back and forth. And it was uh, just a great interview. And so seeing all these wonderful things happen to her, you know, she's now directing the Eternals as well. Which yeah, is her big Marvel throughout. movie. Can't wait to see that. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just, it couldn't have happened to a nicer person. Do you think there's an Oscar best picture winner among the lineup that they have this year? Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question. I haven't really thought of it in that way. Um, Jane well, Campion. You were saying that everyone, you know. No, no, absolutely. You know, you're right. You're right. I sh maybe I should have thought about it. More. <laughs> <laughs> I should have thought about it that way, really. Um, yeah, I, um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Jane Campion is uh, a former Oscar winner who's coming back uh, with the power of the dog. So there's, there is a, a a possibility there the foreign language oscar yes you've got several likely yes. contenders in the mix um yeah that's an, that's an interesting question maybe uh, give me i might come back to you on that one yeah, yeah. certainly in part two <laughs> but let's continue on that let's get into some of the movies i thought we'd start with sort of these bigger ones first and then there's a whole bunch of non-competition ones we can talk about there. Right. but you mentioned Jane Campion from my perspective this is one of the movies I'm most looking forward to I mean Campion is one of my big idols and I I don't think she's done a movie since 2009 I believe you know, then she did Top of the Lake for TV but she hasn't done a movie in a long time oh she didn't she do um, Bright Star was uh... that was that was many years ago Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. No, no, yeah, I haven't yeah. been a long time. I think it's been decades since she's actually released a movie. Um, and, and for reasons that she's been quite vocal about, that the industry is just the bitch, especially. For yeah. Women. Um, yeah. But this one is based on a novel and it's starring Benedict Cumberbatch, who plays sort of a 
domineering rancher whose brother um, brings home his new wife. They're played by one of my favorite real life co uh, couples, Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons. And it's just an emotional ride. It's a Western she filmed it in New Zealand. I just have great expectations for this movie. Yeah, I'm, I I think I've I've loved Jane Campion's work um, since uh, well, Angel at My Table and and the Piano. Um, so I, I and 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 she it is really really frustrating. I talked to uh, Helen O'Hara, uh, who wrote this great book, Women versus Hollywood. And one of the points that, that comes through that book is that the sexist um, structures of the industry, are obviously the primary victim are the women who have their careers limited, uh, but the secondary victim are the audiences who are denied wonderful work by women who, for no other reason than, than sexism, institutional sexism. And Jane Campion is one of these. Jane Campion is a director who should have made as many films as Martin Scorsese. You know, she's she's got it. She's got she's absolutely, you know, it's no one could could make the argument that she 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 hasn't made these films because she doesn't have the talent or the knack or the capacity, you know. So yeah, it will be really exciting to see this this uh movie. I mean, um Benedict Cumberbatch in sort of American uh, roles is sometimes, for me, is a little bit of a put off. Um, I, I don't think his accent game is necessarily uh, as good as it as it could be. Um, I think he's a talented, he's definitely a talented actor. And you're right, Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst uh, are both you know bring a lot of quality to the party and i get i get the feeling i'm not sure but i get the feeling isn't it kind of quite a sort of southern gothic sort of feel to it as well as uh as well as a western i think so there's a very interesting uh, vanity fair piece where both campion and and cumberbatch talk about you know the acting process and how they approached this character you're not a cumber bitch, I hear, which is apparently the term. For, <laughs> for, but uh, but what he says is very he's not been allowed to play this type of role. His role is definitely ambiguous and 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 not. I, I'm I'm supposing it's not a very lovable, um, mocking, cruel type of of character. So I think it's going to be really something different for that we haven't seen from him before. Yeah, absolutely. I I. I... I, I'm definitely. It's definitely one of the highlights that I'm looking forward to uh, in the in the main competition. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think good things good things things could come come from it. But I'm also again the slightly worrying thing as as well is when somebody um, doesn't make films for years and years, you do sort of worry that not so much that they might have lost it, but that there's too much riding on too small a sample size. You know. Mm -hmm. um, I watched Deep Impact, uh, Mimi Leder's film, uh, you know, Asteroid Hitting the Earth film, and she didn't make film. She didn't make any movies for years after that film. It was a bit of a flop, I think, at the time as well. But that's that's another of the problems with the situation is that you that women get far less of a chance to make movies. So when they do make uh, one that doesn't necessarily succeed, it it is it has a disproportionately negative effect on their careers. Right. Right, they just don't get the opportunity to master their craft more and more. And yeah, make yeah. mistakes and to come back again. Exactly, or to or to do follies, you know, to do something which is really talented and interesting and out there, like New York, New York, for instance, to continue the Scorsese parallel. And then, but I, I've got a, I think Campion. I'm pretty confident that, that this is going to be a, an interesting film. I'm really, I'm looking forward to it. Another Netflix movie, because this Power of the Dog is Netflix, is Sorrentino, who's back with his most personal film yet, which is um, just judging by the trailer and what I've read about his own story of a terrible tragedy that happened to him in his childhood, where he was saved by actually going to see a, um, a soccer game or a football game with Maradona uh, and how then cinema saved him. It's a very, very personal film starring his muse, Tony Servillo. What do you think? I don't think he feels like he's used his personal story very much until now. No, absolutely not. I think, I think there were sort of two main voices in Italian cinema at the moment. 
uh, I mean, Italian cinema of this sort of sort of auteur style, you know, and of course, popular cinema is totally different. But um, Sorrentino is, is on one side and Matteo Garoni is on the other. And Garoni is more of sort of the realist, if it may be magical realist at times. And Sorrentino is much more the flamboyant sort of Fellini-esque kind of um, uh, over-the-top, sort of very, very showy, very, very stylistic. Um, Sorrentino in the past, I found ultimately far too... The style has began to grate after a while. You know, I was sort of there with him for um, Il Divo, which I think was his sort of international. I mean, he did Consequenza del Amore before Il Divo, but it was still like his arrival on the international stage. And then when he did La Grande Bellezza, The Great Beauty, and um, uh, he did the one with Michael Caine, Youth and yeah uh, and and i th- i just find the there's a law of diminishing returns where everything that's happening in the film seems to be happening to give you a really good shot you know it's not happening because these things are actually happening it's happening because these things look amazing uh and they go well with this piece of music and um that i mean in the great beauty that works to some degree because it's about an aesthete so you're sort of seeing it from his perspective but when you get to his film about silvia berlusconi which i think got a very limited release internationally it was in in italy it was like two it's split into two parts and it was a like four or five hour film uh and i think internationally it got like a, a, a shorter cut uh it was just it was just awful i just really really uh, didn't didn't like it at all, and it was kind of the over the top Sorrentino. So I, in a sense, I'm really pleased that he's going back to something which sounds personal, sounds a bit more heartfelt, and and hopefully it will it will sort of give his his you know obviously amazingly talented visual sense something to do, something to say because that's what's really lacked. He's he's someone who can make a wonderful looking film which ultimately doesn't really have anything to say. Now, this, as I say, I hope this breaks that trend. Yeah, yeah, that's what it feels like. Um, Sorrentino's talked openly about what happened to him in several articles recently, so I'll mention it here. He says when he was 17 years old, he went to a soccer game, a football game, to see Maradona, and while he was there, his parents died tragically in a gas leak, um, I believe. And he delves right into this in this new movie and also how cinema changed and saved him, so it's going to be very personal. John, would you say that Sorrentino is more criticized, more scrutinized back home in Italy than internationally? Yeah, I'm 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 not I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure. I mean, there is definitely a sense that anybody who has international success from Italy, um, there's an ambivalence towards them. There's there's a sort of like hooray for us, look at Team Italy, you know, Forza Italia. Mm-hmm. Um and there's also a sense of you're selling a version of Italy, which is very uh, digestible to the to the outside world. So the things that he shows about Italy, you know, the vulgarity, the 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 um, the tastelessness of uh, La Grande Bellezza. You know, it's it's about it's an opera about tastelessness uh, at the highest levels. Um, it's that that's that fits stereotypes, you know. Um, yeah, I think he confirms, you know, Il Divo is all about political corruption in Italy and and has a plot which is as complicated as the actual real events that it's based on. But it also really does sort of slam home that idea of it, that Italian politics just being, you know, baroquely corrupt. Um, and and the Grande Bellezza does have this, you know, huge critique of this sort of tastelessness and vulgarity in the midst of all this beauty, in the midst of all this. And again, it's sort of, yeah, those are all sorts, there are a heck of a lot of stereotypes sort of in there to unpack. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm a bit, I think I'm a little bit, cause I, because I've got a foot in both camps, I've lived in Italy for 20 odd years, and I'm obviously not Italian. I find... Um, yeah, I find when when Italians are saying Sorrentino's terrible, 
that's an exaggeration. And when uh, English people or, or people from outside of Italy are saying Sorrentino's a new Fellini, I say, no, 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 he definitely is not that, you know. It's going to be so um, interesting to hear what you think about this movie when we get back. I mean, that's it looms large yeah. in Sweden as well with, you know, Bergman, every who isn't compared to the Fellini, the Bergman. It's like it's it, that getting out of a country means that you have to deal with that ghost. Yeah. Was, is it Harold Bloom and the anxiety of influence? You know, those right. those those the fathers you have to kill the the the, you know, the people who loom over you. And yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think Bergman in Sweden uh, is comparable to to Fellini and and all of the, you know, Visconti and all of the Sika, that whole generation of filmmakers, really. And then, at least in Sweden, it's kind of one guy. In, <laughs> in, in, in Italy, there's this big. generation. He's that huge, one guy isn't he? looms large. He's like a factory. He's like yeah. a, a factory of genius. Yeah, I mean Bergman's so amazing. Even Tarkovsky sort of goes to Sweden and makes a Bergman movie. You know, he can't make a Tarkovsky movie. He has to make a Bergman movie. You know, there's going to be a lot of uh, Bergman now with the remake of um, Scenes from a Marriage, which is actually going to be premiering in Venice. Which I've only uh, very recently actually watched. It's like during the lockdown, I, I watched the the um, uh, the original and um, and. <sighs> Yeah, I don't know if you need to do that again. I mean, it's so it's so good. It's so I, I don't see what you could bring, except maybe to lead people back to the original. Um, yeah, it's and be really I, interesting did, to see. Didn't Marriage Story do it as well? I mean, Marriage Story is scenes from a marriage. Oh, the influence of scenes from a marriage is huge, of course. Marriage Story, Woody Allen. I mean, the director of the remake of Scenes of a Marriage himself, Haggai. Levi's own work, The Affair and In Treatment on TV. So yeah, big shoes, big shoes to fill. But moving on to someone who has not so much taken on the father as he has the mother, um, Almodovar will be in Venice with his new film, Madres Paralelas, starring Penelope Cruz once again. It seems to be about two pregnant women who meet giving birth in a hospital and, and then their parallel motherhood stories. But now, Almodóvar is a director whose films I very consistently have liked. Um, and quite personally, you know, my mother was from Spain and ended up in the States. And oh, well, long story. But even his later films, Dolor and Gloria, were really meaningful to me in how he's looked into that relationship between uh, mothers and, and daughters and sons. So what is your relationship to Almodóvar's career? He hasn't really flagged uh, Maldivar, has he? He hasn't, you know, he hasn't had that the dip that you sort of would expect in such a long career. I mean, maybe he did that one film that I didn't see about an airport, which which I think was universally considered right. uh, one of his weakest films. He's been but, very consistent. But I think you have to like Almodovar to think he's consistently interesting, or you just don't think he's ever been interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I have watched him since he he did those really sort of punkish films in the eighties as well, um, uh, and and that sort of streak of subversiveness sort of go, continues to this day, and and you can see it in his uh, in his more recent work as well. Um, uh, the skin I live in, I remember, uh, I thought was a particular sort of highlight in terms of an interest, really interesting sort of. Uh, movement into genre um yeah no i'm look i'm looking forward to this i'm uh I, I mean i'm not i'm not i don't i wouldn't say i'm his biggest fan i i think you're absolutely right i think he is definitely a, a flavor it's like a restaurant that you know what you're gonna get and 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 you always eat well but if you don't like you know if you don't like paella don't, don't go exactly. there you know that's what it is it's like wes anderson i mean I'm overjoyed that his trailer looks a lot like the other ones too, because I just think those visuals and that sensibility and the narrator and how it is just, it works for me. But if you really have not liked the things they've done before, then each one you have to come to again, sort of. Yeah, exactly. And there's, I mean, I think with Wes Anderson, there's always a, a thing that if there's some, he, he's a director who needs a very strong presence pushing against him. I think it's kind of true of all of many directors is they work best when there's somebody else who's very creative, sort of pushing again, maybe in the in another direction. 
Um, and he had that in Grand Budapest Hotel with Ray Fiennes. He has it in Royal Tenenbaums with Gina Hackman, Bottle Rocket with James Can, Bill Murray in Rushmore. He has this, you know, really... And and I think when he doesn't have it, like Darjeeling Limited or Life Aquatic, the films just become really indulgent. I think in French Dispatch, I enjoyed a lot. Oh, but the struggle. Yeah, I saw oh, it I can, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, if you like, if you like that restaurant, you'll there's plenty to eat it's a buffet you know it's it's all it's all laid out for you um <laughs> not so much uh, into buffets during the pandemic but i know <laughs> no no finger food finger food is not uh is not it's, yeah yeah that's one of the things you've got to be careful when you go to venice uh of course you'll the spritz everyone has spritz and with your spritz there's always a little dish of of crisps and uh uh, yeah, so it's it, yeah, having crisps from a shared bowl is is not a great <laughs> idea during a pandemic. So I want to talk a little bit about someone who's not in competition, but eighty-three-year-old Ridley Scott coming out with two huge movies. One of them is going to be in Venice, The Last Duel, which is written by um, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, who are also starring in it. Um, and uh, he also later this year has House of Gucci, which I don't think anyone has missed that trailer uh, with Lady Gaga about the murder in the Gucci family. Um, that's two pretty big movies for Ridley Scott, 83 years old. He's really he's one of my favorite favorites. Sorry, I just wanted to check because I think there's also another writer uh, as well as Affleck. And I think Nicole Hol- Hol- Center, Right, right. Yeah, who, who contributed? She's done the female parts of it somehow. Yeah, yeah, which is an interesting, which is an interesting choice as well, especially because Scott, one of his most successful films, and this goes back to what I was saying about Wes Anderson, is probably Thelma and Louise. In the, uh, you know, right. he's, I think, post Alien and Blade Runner, it's probably his most successful movie, and it's one that's pushing that he found himself with two. Susan, especially with Susan Sarandon, with a major creative actress pushing against him and saying and questioning him and forcing him. And he, uh, uh, I just read um, Ian Austin's book about Ridley Scott, who's just the retrospective, it's called. And um, he he absolutely loved making Thelma and Louise because it was he felt he was having a real creative collaboration with the actresses. Um, I I really like him. Uh, he's probably one of my earliest sort of directors. You know, I mean, I'll tell people in interviews, uh, podcasts and things like that. I'll tell people that my first director that I really fell in love with was Orson Welles or was Stanley Kubrick. But really, <laughs> probably Ridley Scott. Yeah, don't tell anyone. Because, you know, you know, as a kid, it's got everything. It, it looks like a directed film. You know, it's it's vis- all his films were very visually um, sort of unmistakable and, and beautiful and full of beautiful shots and full of interesting layered textured things, you know. Um, and Alien and Blade Runner were two of the best science fiction films I'd ever seen. Uh, his later career has, you know, especially more recently, you know, has been incredibly successful financially. I mean, Martian was huge success. Um but has been a lot more sort of patchy and, and he's consistently, his quality, I, I would always see a film of his at the cinema, you know, he, like Steven Spielberg, I would never think, well, I can wait and see this on TV. So I'm really pleased to go and see The Last Duel. I'm really pleased that it's back to a historical uh, topic because I think he works well in in this. I think Kingdom Kingdom of Heaven, Gladiator, The Duelists, um, I re- and one of my favorite uh, Ridley Scott films is 1492, which I think is uh, is stunning. So I'm really I'm really pleased to see him back there. The the reason that he's got these two films coming out in, in close conjunction is is purely because of the pandemic. Though it's um, yeah, I mean, Last Jewel was uh, supposed to come out this time last year and was delayed a year. So he's made he's made the other, uh, House of Gucci in the meantime, but. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm looking forward to it, and it's good to see Damon and Affleck sort of return to writing Back because together they're writing, um, yeah, yeah, because you know it, was, it hasn't been since um, Good, Goodwill Hunting. Good I think Hunting, was, yeah, I mean that's been a long time they've done something together. It's going to be interesting that was re- to see if they still have it. <laughs> well, yeah, and you could, you know, you could, there's an argument for saying that was that they are much better screenwriters than they necessarily are actors. Oh, yeah. oh that's a bit that's a bit cruel, but I mean, I I don't mean to put them down as actors i just mean 
that's a really good screenplay. That's really a really well written piece of work. They and yeah, and Matt Damon getting sort of dunked on every five minutes for something he comes out with, uh, you know, in an interview or something, which I always think is slightly unfair. I think Matt Damon always gets hit by the sort of Team America uh, image of him as this sort of overly woke liberal who doesn't quite he's get kicked he gets kicked by the left for not being woke enough and he gets kicked by the right for being woke in the first place so it's a little bit of a um yeah i think i think he's treated a bit unfairly poor poor matt damon poor matt damon someone had some kind of analysis that every time Affleck was down, then everyone was kicking on the other one. And then when he was down, everyone kicked on that one. And then they sort of meet up in the middle and make a movie. <laughs> yeah, they go on uh, Jimmy Kimmel in the middle. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, then there's a bunch of other ones that, of course, people are talking about that I want to just ask you about. What are you expecting from Pablo Lorraine Spencer about Diana? Um, it looks like it. To me, it looks like in structure and format, it'd be very similar to uh, Jackie. So uh, the, the film he made with Natalie Portman about Jackie, then Jackie Kennedy, um, and after Jackie Onassis, obviously. Um, I, I think it's sort of like a week in the life of, or it's a few days in the life of uh, Princess Diana at, at a point of crisis. When decided to divorce Charles, I think the, the weekend of that decision or something like yeah that. exactly so i get the feeling that it'll be a slightly claustrophobic drama centered around a woman you know surrounded by hostility and you know making sort of trying to make make a play for her for her own freedom and identity um kristen stewart i'm i'm really interested to see her actually play a, a real person she which she's done before of course with seaberg um and she did with uh tg tj leroy as well i think um the film about the sort of right literary scandal of a, of a writer who wasn't you know disguised themselves and all the rest of it um i mean i she i think she can be a really wonderful actress i think she can really sort of pull thing you know well actress might not be the right word movie star she's really she's really good at doing that i'm not entirely sure she's really good at actually being other people i mean i didn't think she was i didn't i didn't i didn't stop seeing Kristen stewart in seaberg there was no point at which i went right oh i can't you know in the sort of yeah yeah exactly so i mean really her best performances are actually something like personal shopper in which she's playing someone who could easily be Kristen Stewart or, you know, who doesn't need to be anybody particularly different from who, who she is. Um, Pablo Lorraine though is, is very interesting. He's made a TV series in the meantime as well. Lisa's story, which mm-hmm. uh, I haven't had the opportunity to see. King, right? Yeah, That's right. Yeah. An adaptation. So he's definitely busy. He's def- definitely broken through. Um, so yeah, I'll be I'll be interested. I think he's a great director. Uh, so I mean, I know it was very divisive. I thought Natalie Portman, who people thought her performance was weird, I thought it was amazing. I thought it was such an interesting delve into media and and uh, how you sort of manipulate, you know, the headlines and what fame means and what what really truth means. Whose truth is being put out there? I thought the music was just. I was like Mika Levy, wasn't Mika it? Mika Levy, I thought it was amazing. Mm. The only thing I think is it, it, it seems a bit like it's kind of the same thing. I mean, it's definitely two women who are in the absolute spotlight in a negative sense of, of, of media during their lives who were just trashed and went through horrible tragedies and traumas and and... But it's going to be interesting, I'm sure. I mean, he's such a great director that he has, it has to be something that makes it, you know, that he, that interests him in these two women in different ways as well. But that's what I'm sort of wrapping my head around is how, what, what is his, his thesis, if you can use that word. <laughs> no, I actually, that's really interesting you use, use the word because I was just thinking exactly that, that there's a PhD thesis already to be written, isn't yes. it? About Pablo Lorraine and, and you know, female, uh, yeah, the centers of female power or something. You can imagine, a, 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 or a DVD box set coming out soon. You know, you're, you're waiting for the, you know, there's not, there's never two without three. You're waiting for the, the final film in the trilogy, unless... It's Neruda, unless, you know, I mean, this will be his third biopic of, of, of film, not really biopic, but film about a biographical subject, I guess. Um, 
because I thought I actually really rated Neruda, which came out before Jackie, and I thought was 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 a really interesting delve into the life of the famous poet. You know, he definitely makes biopics interesting. And then we have one of three Oscar Isaac projects which are coming. He's in Dune. He's in Marriage uh, Scenes from a Marriage, which just talked about, and The Card Counter, which is sort of taxi driver legend Paul Schrader's movie, who I really loved First Reformed. I thought that was really good that he did a couple of years ago, who's been very criticized for how he's he is on social media <laughs> and what he says and how he talks about women. He's back in Venice with this film that's described, the plot is described as William Tell is a gambler and former serviceman who sets out to reform a young man seeking revenge on a mutual enemy from their past. So what do you think of Schrader, his legacy, and um, his arrival with this new movie? Yeah, um, I mean, Schrader is definitely one of those sort of leftovers from from the 70s generation. Uh, and, And I think if you read the original Taxi Driver script, there's a lot of sexism in in the, the script, which isn't just, you know, the, the old thing of, you know, is it sexist or is it about sexism? But the description I remember exactly. of uh, Sybil Shepard's character um, in the, the, the sort of stage direction, you know, rather than the dialogue uh, is fairly horrible. So yeah, they're, they're, he's definitely sort of got form well, I mean, he's a product, of, like everybody, he's a product of the situation that he was growing up in. And the 70s were an incredibly different time for the way men thought they were, they ought to think about women. Um, having this said case, that, hasn't really changed because if you read some of the, I haven't read it all, but some of the Facebook things that I've seen, um, that streak has continued, how he sort of describes waitresses, sort of everyday life of, how he sees women um, shines through still. Sure. I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not, I'm no, not defending him or making no, any no. apology for him, but I, I'm just also sort of like, you know, no shit Sherlock, you know, <laughs> an old geezer who grew up in the sixties and seventies is, has got fairly reprehensible sort of knee jerk views of, about women. Um, I mean, in terms of his work, Schrader has, I, I always think of him as slightly, I, I, you know how you get sometimes get confused between two directors. Um, the one I most easily confuse Paul Schrader with is Abel Ferrara. I always have this flip that I always think they all, kind of both work in genre. They're both very New York sensibilities. Um, they both probably have already done their best work quite a few years ago, but uh, in contrast to Abel Ferrara, I think Paul Schrader's more recent films from Dog Eat Dog, um, The First Reformed, and and uh, hopefully this one have have actually been much much better and 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 not only better, not only good as in oh it's nice to see the guy who wrote Raging Bull, you know, making a uh, a good movie, but actually you know as good as anything he's done. You know, I think First Reformed was as, as was pr- definitely has uh, a, the possibility of, of being the best film he directed, you know, which is saying something given that he, you know, directed Mishima and uh, um, a whole bunch of, of pretty good movies, Cat People, the remake and, and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I know, I mean, just, just going back to that toxic masculinity sort of thing. I mean, he's, he's kind of the poet laureate of toxic masculinity, isn't yeah. he? So, I mean, that's kind of. And that was what was interesting with First Reform, because there he was delving sort of like we were talking about with Almodovar and Santino, that he was delving into a bunch of um, religious uh, quandaries that he's had since his youth, since he grew up in a very religious household and what that sort of meant to him um, when he started afterwards. And it just, it was a very, it felt very personal in its themes, maybe not in its plot, but, uh, and, and you could feel that and that he really was directing from that place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's definitely, and I think he's, you know, I mean, there's a little bit of the old Testament prophet about him. He's, he's, he has always looked a little bit nihilistically uh, and certainly pessimistically uh, at, the, at the world and um, the times f- seem to fit that that point of view you know they seem mm-hmm. to be you know when when I, I remember listening to him during the 
press conference and he was basically saying, look, we, the human race had a good run, but I'd be very surprised if we'll still be around you know, in another hundred years. And he seriously meant it. He was absolutely convinced, you know. Moving along here towards the end, um, one of the things this this year got a little bit of flack for was that there were fewer female filmmakers um, compared to, I think there was only five in competition. There was eight last year, but, um, and we haven't mentioned all that many are campion, but I am looking forward to um, Maggie Gyllenhaal's The Lost Daughter. It's written and directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal. I believe it's her first uh, film directorial debut. I think she's done some TV. It's based on the novel by the same name, by Elena Ferrante, and it stars a whole amazing crew, Olivia Colman, Jesse Buckley, Dakota Johnson, Peter Sarsgaard. Um, yeah, so do you know any more about this? No, I don't. And I um, I don't know much, but I yeah, I, I think it's always good to sort of welcome new voice as well you know the more the more the merrier frankly at this at this stage and i also would say this that this argument against quotas for instance you know berlinale have got a sort of 50 percent quota system Mm -hmm. now in place i i think it always rings very very hollow in venice because there seems to be no problem having a really large proportion of italian films in competition when italian films don't especially in Venice, I mean, really the best, if you have a really good Italian film, it goes to Cannes or maybe Berlin. It, it doesn't go to Venice. I mean, Venice is where, it, where uh, you know, there can be the occasionally good, the good one, but you get a heck of a lot of mediocre Italian films. So there seems to be an unofficial quota for Italian films in the competition. So why you can't just have an, a, a, um, why you can't have more women there? It, it does to me that that argument doesn't hold it's water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as for well, maybe the, it's why they see this one because it is an Elena Ferrante based on her book. It is sort of Italian. They're sort of putting it into that quota there. I guess it must be filmed in Italy too. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I you know, I, I think to some degree um, it's easier for them. I mean, festivals do have there is a certain sort of you know, sausage factory about festivals where a lot of considerations have nothing to do with high art or quality of the film or anything. And so the fact that The Lost Daughter will bring a red carpet moment for Jesse Buckley, Dakota Johnson, uh, Olivia Coleman, you know, Oscar winner, um, Alba Rohrwacker, who is in every single film ever made, uh, will also be there. Um, and Maggie Gil- uh, Gyllenhaal herself. Uh, you know, I think that also has a certain sort of impact on their decision of whether to put a film in in competition. So I think there's an element if it if Maggie Gyllenhaal what was um, uh, was a first time female director who hadn't appeared in a bunch of movies, she might not have found herself uh, in competition as uh, as well. And again, that's not that actually that's nothing. I'm not in any way suggesting that she doesn't deserve to or there's no merit in it. I'm just saying that these calculations uh so that that will have benefited her to get her to get her that that place um they just should have a lot more that's what that's all i'm you know uh it's no excuse yeah um, um this is one that will be will be really interesting i mean this will it's interesting to compare this with say jane campion as well that you're getting somebody who is relatively fresh to to directing and um i want to and, end up oh sorry go ahead. yeah no 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 i was gonna just gonna say and uh, i would watch olivia coleman read the the phone book oh, i think yeah. she's such an amazing actress that i kind of she's also one of these actresses who's having a really good uh run of of script reading that she's obviously getting a lot of scripts because of her um oscar win and because she's amazing you know amazing. because she's really good um, and she's getting, uh, and she's picking them very, very well. I think, it, you know, every film she's in, I'm fascinated to see what she does. She's just the best. I'd even share those pandemic crisps with her. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't think they sell them. I don't think they're branded as pandemic crisps. <laughs> when, when we do part two of this in Venice, we're going to be eating with our yes. pandemic crisps. <laughs> we'll sponsor the show. Um, so I want to end up with Dune, which is a big one. But I was wondering if there's anything else. Is there something you wanted to highlight to me that I should see while there that I haven't, uh, that we really didn't get into here before we get into Dune? There are a lot of uh, documentaries in, I mean, not necessarily in the competition, um, outside of the competition as well, which I think uh, there's a documentary on Hallelujah, the Leonard Cohen song, Leonard Cohen, yes, which, uh, which if you're a Leonard Cohen fan, I would definitely recommend. Um, there's also a film, Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon by Anna Lily Amipur, who made the, who made, uh, the A Girl Works Home at Night. Um, she, she made a, a for me, a really poor film called *The Bad Batch*, uh, and so I'd be—I'm I'm hoping that that was a, a blip, and and that would be interesting as well to see. Um, uh, of the rest, I'm trying to think of of the other. No, there's nothing. There's nothing. I think we've covered all the ones that I was that I was thinking about as well, and I was really upset that um, *Blonde* didn't turn up by Andrew Dominic but I think the reason there was a very specific reason behind that which was Netflix didn't like it they didn't like the cut I have also heard that they're fighting with Dominic I mean that he he wants the final cut then they're yeah I mean happy with which is so weird from Netflix point of view because if you get Andrew Dominic to make this incredible novel to the I mean I'm not sure what you expect <laughs> um, I mean the, the not the novel is a deconstruction of this sort of sex symbol into a, a, the human reality in the you know the lived experience of the woman who's it's amazing you know it's a really good book and it's really well it's really well written and it's really really I think it's it's one of Joyce Carol Oates best books Andrew Dominic is one of our best directors, best directors most yeah. uncompromising directors so what are you gonna what did you expect I don't know but let's talk about Dune. I guess Dune was is the big get for Venice. It's the big um, blockbuster that most of the festivals wanted. I'm no huge um, Dune expert, but I've delved into the book and seen Lynch movie. I really like um, Villeneuve's previous work. So, but what are your expectations? Well, I'm I. Well, I am the expert. So good. <laughs> See, that's why I called. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I, yeah, Dune was the book that I, st- I can't even remember having never read. I, I read it when I was very young and I was constantly reading it in combination with Lord of the Rings for until I was 15, I think. So I, yeah, I repeatedly read and I recently reread it as well. Um, and so I, I'm a big fan of the book. And uh, in terms of the movie, and I, I'm also a fan of the original uh, David Lynch uh, movie. I think it looks amazing. I think the style of uh, the design in that movie is unsurpassed. It really, it really does manage to avoid the cliches of of science fiction and do yeah, something it's kind very of different. Fairly treated by history, I have to say. Well, I mean, it, it kind of doesn't work as a film. I mean, the first half it feels like a film, and then the second half feels like you've cut, you've missed out an episode of a, a TV show, and you're watching cat the, the 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 sort of like. And then Paul fell in love with Cheney, and then this happened, and then that happens. It's like, wait, what? What are we doing this now? We're fast forwarding. Um, so, Villeneuve has got away from that possible danger by uh, splitting his film into two parts one comment that he made recently really worried me and he was in a interview for vanity fair or somewhere like that that he mentioned that he's currently writing the script for part two and there's just a bit of me that thinks wouldn't you if you're writing a two-part movie wouldn't you write it like all and then so that if there's anything that you discover while you're re- writing part two you can put you know you can go back to part one and fix it find i always find that really weird that you wouldn't forefront the writing just so you know where to go um so that so there he hasn't written the script yet he hasn't finished the script yet and this is only part one of the movie and so this could be a very golden compass moment where we get a big splendid really admirable beginning of a saga and it doesn't do well enough at the box office to justify the second part. And I, I, and given the, the starriness of the cast and given the, 
expenses of making a science fiction movie and given the the performance of blade runner uh, 2049 i would i i'm going in this with i'm going into this with with an added trepidation of not only is the movie going to be good but are we ever going to see the sort of full version of the movie or are we just going to see the first part um because it is it, you know the book doesn't have a i mean there is a dividing point but it isn't a conclusion you it, it, there's no way you you would think this will be a standalone story so in that sense um it's it's there are a lot of question marks around this and having said that it looks the trailer looks good um he's a brilliant visual the cast looks phenomenal he's brilliant visually um and arrival was what was a great was a great movie I just, I just do, I do worry because Denis Villeneuve reminds me a lot of Ridley Scott, but um, I think Ridley Scott is is someone who worries a bit more about script and story than Denis Villeneuve does, and and one of the problems I had with Twenty Forty Nine is that that was a ninety minute film lounging in a in in you know two and a half hours of cinematography, and and as beautiful as it was, it was so boring. I mean, it was a beautiful, gorgeous, sounded wonderful, love, you know. And I I think this sort of is a problem with science fiction generally. So there's all this idea of building universes and, and, and stuff. And it's like, yeah, that's all great. But you've actually got to have a story. You've actually got to have, you know, and keep hold of your story and make it interesting. I don't think 2049 did that, even though I, you know, totally admire that movie. I think I gave it five stars when I reviewed it for Cineview. I, I was knocked out and impressed by it, but at the same time bored. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're giving up all your secrets here. <laughs> oh, only on this, exclusively. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I'm so looking forward to meeting up with you again to see what we actually thought. Yeah. I'm excited. There's a lot of um, directors and performers and think here that, have meant something to me and that I've been new ones that haven't. So, so the lineup for me feels really good. So we'll. we'll and, I, and I bet you a spritz that the film that we end up talking about most is something we've, we've not mentioned. We haven't seen. Exactly. Yeah. I think we, so. we, oh, we're not even, it's not on our radar at all, but that will be the film that we'll be going. Oh, I can't believe that it's a miracle of a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, John. Um, tell everyone what your next episode is of writers on film and things like that. Okay, so um, well, you can find me on Twitter at Dr. John T D R J O N T Y, and uh, the next episode is coming out on Friday, um, and is about Rob Young, uh, who's written a brilliant book called The Magic Box, which is all about TV and film in seventies and eighties Great Britain, and it's a lot of it's sort of folk horror. And it's just an amazing book. And he's a, uh, it was great to have him on and, and talk to him. And you can find that on iTunes and Spotify and wherever you can get podcasts. Everywhere, where you find this yeah. one as well. All right. Thank you so much. See you next week. Thank you, Christina. Bye. Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are we are always unpacking that very question on sleepover cinema check out sleepover cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com see you soon